continuing in our Holy Spirit series, we're going to be talking about the Spirit of the Lord. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to be talking a little bit about the seven spirits of God today. I mentioned last week that there was a big culture shock when I came from more of a traditional Lutheran background over to a Pentecostal church and got experienced and experience things like people raising their hands in church and waving flags and speaking in tongues and dancing and prophetic words and all these kind of things that come with being more Pentecostal than being more traditional. And I had to learn and relearn some things that I thought I knew about Christianity. And one of those things was the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as I was growing up, and it was probably my own misunderstandings because it wasn't really taught us in, in confirmation classes, was just kind of this ethereal part of God that was just the thing that went out and, and touched people. But I never really recognized him as the third person of a triune God. And over the years, and especially in the Pentecostal church, we came across many people who claimed they had a special gift from God called the anointing. If you're around the church at all in the 90s and early 2000s, there was all kinds of people just running around saying that they had the anointing of God, especially around the Brownsville revival, the Toronto outpouring, all that kind of stuff. It was You're looking for people that had that anointing. And you're thinking, what is the anointing? Well, the word anoint or anointing in the Bible has a very special meaning. And it's a Hebrew word, it's meshach, which means to smear in, to press in, and to infuse something. So when you are anointing something, it's pressing in and filling every pore of something with an outsized substance. An example of this is seen in Psalm 23 when the scripture said, He anoints my head with oil and my cup runs over. It's talking about just being completely immersed in, in this case, oil, but within the Holy Spirit. And in, case of the Holy, in the case of the Holy Spirit's anointing, it's God smearing himself onto us, just covering us with himself, pressing into every pore that we have and infusing us with power from on high. And in the Old Testament, you've see, seen this fall on particular individuals. Generally, this anointing was limited to kings, to warriors, to leaders and prophets. It wasn't given out to everybody. It was given out to people that had that extra special blessing of God. And we're going to see that in Isaiah chapter 11 today. In Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet is giving us a prediction that specifically points to Jesus about 500 years before he was born. So Isaiah is looking forward, he's seeing Jesus come, and he's describing the spirit that is going to be upon him. And if you remember the details about Jesus' baptism, Jesus came up out of the water and then the Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove, symbolizing this anointing coming upon him for the mission that the entire sevenfold Spirit of God was coming upon him. And that's a big idea that I want us to get from our, our learning today, 
is that the anointing that was available to Jesus at his baptism is the same Holy Spirit anointing that's available for you and I today. And we're going to be looking at that as we look through some Old Testament figures and study the scripture from Isaiah today. So Isaiah 11, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take this scripture today and you help us to see all the mighty power that is available to us through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, smear that into us, press that into us, infuse that into us, because we need this kind of power to live in such a time as this. Father God, I thank you, and I ask, Father, that you touch your word and use it to change our hearts this morning. In your name, amen. Now, today I'm going to be doing probably a little more teaching than preaching. And we're going to be looking at a lot of different things and a lot of different people in the Old Testament to see how in the Old Testament people could have seen the, um, the prophets' words and see them in the Old Testament um, people that they knew of. And looking forward, of course, to Jesus, which would have all seven of these spirits within him. And many Old Testament commentators have labeled this section of Isaiah as the sevenfold spirit of God. And if you read there, there are seven different spirits that are talked about. And it gives a general idea of what the Holy Spirit's function is in our lives and the kind of things that we can expect from having a Holy Spirit baptism. What was available to Jesus is also available to us today. And we forget that, I think, sometimes. So we're going to take these descriptions one at a time. And I will note that here that these gifts or attributes are not mutually exclusive. They kind of bleed over into one another. And I think you'll see this as we go through the lesson. And we begin today with the Spirit of the Lord. Now the example I want to use in the Old Testament for the Spirit of the Lord is Moses. And the reason is, is because the Spirit of the Lord is tied in to leadership leadership, or kingship. In the case of Moses, he was called on by God to do what seemed to be an impossible task. Single-handedly go and take on the world's only superpower called Egypt, which was being led by a man called Pharaoh who considered himself to be a god. Moses' task was to demand the freedom of the people who were propping up their entire national economy. They were rich because they didn't have to pay for labor. They had slave labor. And they were propping this whole nation up and making them the wealthiest nation in the known world of their time. That's no small task that God is calling Moses to, is it? In fact, Moses tried to argue with God not to send him. He goes, I'm a man... I can't speak well. He gave him a thousand different reasons, and God still told him to go. 
But imagine you're Moses for a second. This would be kind of like God calling you to walk into the Kremlin right now, jump up on Vladimir Putin's desk, and, and demand that he do what the God he doesn't believe in tells him to do. That's kind of what he's looking at here. That would probably be, if you tried to do that in Russia, it'd be instant death, wouldn't it? And that's what Moses is looking at here. Not only his death, but the death of his entire family. And that was the first major task that God had Moses do. The second, and probably the most draining, was to lead six million former slaves to walk in circles in the desert for 40 years. Not only was he the leader of those people, but he was also the senior pastor in many aspects. Even though Aaron was the high priest, Moses was still the person who had to make most of the spiritual decisions that occurred during that time. So, the spirit of the Lord that was placed on him, I want to point out something very specific about this revelation of the Holy Spirit, and that's its name. You don't see it in our English Bible so much, but when you read it in the Hebrew, you see that the Hebrew word for Lord here are what's called the Tetragrammaton. It's the four letters placed in the Hebrew alphabet for the holy name of God. We transliterate it Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on um, which uh, version of the Bible you're reading. And the Hebrews felt that the name of God was so holy they would never spell it completely out. We really don't know what the vowels were in there. They're the best um, guess that we have. And so the YHWH, it's taking the name of the Lord and placing it on this spirit. The significance of this for us is that the person exhibiting the attributes of the spirit of the Lord is acting in God's authority and his power. And that's a pretty big deal. This is very true of Moses. You ever read like Exodus and Leviticus and some of these Old Testament books, and you look at them and it seems like God was on a hair trigger of judgment? It just seemed like God just wanted to drop the hammer all the time, really fast on, on, on a lot of different people. The Bible, in the case of Moses, the Bible says that he was so filled with the Spirit of the Lord that Moses' face literally glowed. And that is why their consequence was there, that when people rebelled against Moses, ground would open up. Snakes would come. People would, would just drop dead. Because they were not rebelling against the man, they were rebelling against the spirit that was in that man. The Holy Spirit of God, the actual name of God that was placed upon Moses. And that's why God judged that very, very harshly. And this is why we are warned, even in the New Testament, against rebelling against spiritual authority. Because in some measure, they carry the spirit of the Lord within them. The next attribute of the sevenfold spirit of God is the spirit of wisdom. And we can't talk in the Old Testament about wisdom without bringing up Solomon, right? He was the wisest man up until that point that had ever lived, I would say, next to Jesus. I mean, he's the one that wrote the majority of the wisdom literature in the Bible, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. If you don't know who Solomon was, he was the 
son of King David and Bathsheba. After the whole scandal with Bathsheba, David ended up marrying her, and they had children. And even though he was one of the youngest sons of David, God chose him to become king at 12 years old. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Kid becomes king over the biggest superpower on earth at the time at 12 years old. Well, one night, this very young king was spending time with God, spending time alone with God in prayer, and God appeared to him in a dream and said, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Now, what do you think would happen if you asked a 12-year-old boy today what they would want? New Xbox? PlayStation? Maybe the pretty girl to like him? More followers on TikTok? They wouldn't be thinking what Solomon was thinking. But then again, they're not 12-year-old boys who are now king. And think about this for a minute. How vulnerable Solomon was at this point. He's 12 years old, and he is king. Do you think he might have to worry about being assassinated? Do you think he might have some family members that think that they were passed over by God and want that throne instead? He's feeling hugely vulnerable. And after all, if you read it in 1 Kings, that Eve's brother is already scheming to try to take him out. And Solomon knows this. I mean, he's so paranoid at this point and so scared of being assassinated, he's even asking his own mother if she's coming in peace or to kill him. All this is on his mind as he ponders what to ask of God. And Solomon, realizing the very tenuous hold over the kingship, being so young, asked God for wisdom. That's pretty amazing. He had a good Sunday school teacher. Ask God for wisdom. Well, let's define that. Wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. What is godly. Solomon realized he would need massive amounts of wisdom to properly rule the kingdom that God had given him. And God granted that request and made him the wisest man that has ever lived. And that was great for Solomon, but I want to remind you that same spirit of wisdom, it's available to you and me. The entirety of God's wisdom is open wide to us. First through his word, and second through the the speaking of God to us through the Holy Spirit. You have that ability to discern or judge what is right, true, and lasting. And in the day we live, do you think we need wisdom? We really need wisdom in these days. The next thing we see is the spirit of understanding. And the spirit of understanding, the example I'll use for that, is Daniel. Now, understanding is a little different than wisdom, although that's, wisdom is part of it. And it's di- different than knowledge by itself. Understanding is both a supernatural gifting, but it also comes through extensive learning. I would define it this way. It's a supernatural application and use of the knowledge that you have learned. 
And this is why Daniel is such a perfect example of having that spirit of understanding. Now, if you remember, Daniel was one of the um, one of the teenagers in the court in in uh, Jerusalem who was captured by the Babylonians and taken to serve the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar. And as part of his role as one of the learned wise men, he was highly educated. Educated in languages and literature and history, all the known sciences of his time. He had PhD level educations in every single one of these fields. That made him the most highly educated person and the chief of the wise men in the kingdom of Babylon. And I know that in our day and age, many people in the church look down on higher education. Because, let's face it, many people in higher education are the ones that are really wreaking havoc on our society today, pushing nonsensical social theories on the population. In their case, they have a lot of knowledge, but they really don't have any understanding. I like to say that they're educated way beyond their ability to comprehend what they think they know. But education by itself is not a bad thing. The end of next month, the end of August, I should be finished with a bachelor's degree in science, specifically to nursing. You know, over the last several years, I've studied what life on this planet looks like, particularly human. And I've looked at everything from single-celled microbes to advanced human anatomy and physiology. I've also studied psychology, sociology, public health, normal human sexuality, all of these things. And I actually had a couple friends that have been keeping up with me over the years. And they were worried about me taking so many science classes. They're worried, oh, he's going to start believing in evolution. He's going to fall away from God like so many others. But I can tell you here today, that my faith in the Bible and God is actually stronger than when I started. Seeing the absolute intricacies of creation has made me just appreciate the God of the Bible even more. I mean, I've looked through the microscopes. I've poured over the diagram, read thousands and thousands, thousands of pages of textbooks. And I've, everything I've read about and looked at is not just some random collection of unlikely chemicals that came together. Everywhere I looked, I saw intricately designed machines. I mean, I wish I could just show you a video of how muscle fiber works. You know, there's like actin and, and actin fibers that like grab each other and pull each other like this within the muscles like machines, they're like, and pull this way to make, to make my arm contract right now. If you look at the intricacies of the eye, of how it focuses, how it relays data into the brain, it's incredible. Or even the machinery seen in a virus or the flagellum of a bacteria, that's a little whip thing that propels them everywhere, little tail. If you look at that through an electron microscope, you see biological gearing in there. It looks like gears. That, that helped this thing spin. It's incredible, the design that went in to all of these different things. And after learning all of this, I found that I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution. I don't. It has to be designed. 
There is no other explanation. To believe in evolution, to me, is like believing that a tornado would hit a junkyard filled with Ford vehicles and somehow put together a Lamborghini that works. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. I don't understand how that can happen. And that's the difference between knowledge and understanding. The evolutionists will try to blow you away with knowledge, but I don't think they understand what they think they know. They haven't thought it all the way out. And really, the spirit of understanding has to do with anything today. It helps you to, to decipher the newspaper, the evening news, all the, the social media posts that you see today. It understands the significance behind the stories that we are hearing. And that's why we need a spirit of understanding in our day. Moving on, the spirit of counsel. And for the spirit of counsel, I picked the Old Testament judge, Deborah. She was known at, for her spirit of counsel. In Judges 4, verse 4, it says, Now Deborah, prophet, the life of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have her disputes decided. Now the spirit of counsel is taken from some of the other spirits that we talked about. We said that these bled over a little bit. So we're taking the spirit of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and we're applying it to life. In the case of Deborah, she was a judge or a leader of the people in the Old Testament and was known as a very, very wise decision maker. So much so that people came even from outside of Israel to hear her judgments concerning situations in the, na in the nation and even among the people. And I'm thankful for Deborah because of a few reasons. One, it shows that the Holy Spirit's gifts are for women as well as men. There, is no, there shouldn't be any patriarchy in the church. We're all equal under the eyes of God. And number two, it shows the power of the gift of arbitration and the power of counsel, wise counsel. Deborah is a key example of that, and she shows us the value of having a faithful counselor available to us in life. Moving on, we see the spirit of might. And the spirit of might is really exemplified through Samson. Samson was all about that spirit of might. And like Deborah, Samson was one of the judges or leaders of Israel after they conquered the promised land under Joshua. And Samson's gift for God was physical strength. He was naturally strong. But then the spirit of might got a hold of that and supercharged it. So much so that an ancient commentator of the Bible, and this is kind of hyperbole, a little exaggeration, said that Samson could go and pick up two giant boulders, one in each hand, rub them together until they turn back into dirt. As I said, a little exaggeration, but you get the point of how strong people thought he was. In fact, most scholars think that the Greek demigod known as Hercules was based on Samson. That, that's where they came up with that idea. And Samson, he did many huge strengths of, or, or, um, feats of strength in his life. He tore an attacking lion. A lion jumps out and, and attacks him. 
No problem, he just grabbed it, ripped it limb from limb with his bare hands. It's pretty strong. Then 30 men try to take him on. He kills all of them with his bare hands. Then he ties torches to foxtails and let them run around burning all the crops of the enemy. Then, he, then they try to kill him again, so he grabs a jawbone of a donkey skeleton and kills a thousand men with it. They, so then they try to lock him up in a city and capture him that way. He just ripped off the gates and carried him up a mountain, put him up there. But for all that strength, Samson had neither wisdom, knowledge, or the fear of the Lord. He fell so far, so fast, that he even let a prostitute take him down by cutting off his hair, which was a symbol of his strength. And the lesson to us through Samson of the spirit of might is we have to be careful that when we're doing these huge feats of whether it's spiritual strength or, or physical strength, that when we do it, we do it onto the Lord and not onto us. The second thing we see in Samson is that he was gifted with this natural strength. I mean, he'd make Arnold Schwarzenegger cross the street if he was walking down the street. Okay, this is a big, big man. And God used his natural strength and supercharged it with the spirit of might into something that was supernatural. And I say this because I think sometimes we wait for God to do the miraculous through us. But maybe the Father is waiting for you to start using what he's already given you. And then let that spirit of might, the power of the Holy Spirit, touch you and supercharge what he's already given you. And, and use that to bring the kingdom of God and his power into that situation. The next thing we see is a spirit of knowledge. And the example for that I would take is Samuel. Samuel is the last of the Old Testament judges. And the spirit of knowledge, I would say, is more of a prophetic gift. It can be both discernment or imparting of facts to a situation that you didn't know before God told you about it. And Samuel is an excellent example of this. God talked to him all the time. Under God's direction, Samuel appoints a man named Saul as king over Israel. Then Samuel takes a step back from the leadership and just steps back into the role of prophet and lets Saul be the king. Occasionally he'd show up and, and give Saul some direction from God, but then he'd kind of disappear into the background again. And one of these times, God tells Samuel to have Saul wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites were like the Canaanites that Joshua slew. They had gotten so bad and their evil was so pervasive that they were threatening to spread it to the other nations of their time. And when a nation gets to that point, God orders their destruction. It's kind of like cutting out a cancer. You don't want to leave any of it behind. You want to get all of it out. So in this case, God orders destruction. He means everything. He ordered the men, the women, the children, the cattle, the family, dog, everything had to be destroyed by Israel. 
And Saul, he takes on this assignment. He does what God wants him to do, but he does it his way. First of all, he doesn't kill everything like God told him to. He leaves the enemy king intact. He, he leaves him alive. And second, he kept all the best cattle and livestock for himself. God supernaturally comes to Samuel and, and tells him what Saul has done, and Samuel confronts Saul about this. Saul tries to lie his way out of this and said, oh, yeah, I, I know that I have some stuff over here, but I was going to sacrifice that to God. Kind of made that up on the fly, I think. Well, Samuel calls him out on it, and in 1 Samuel 15, 22, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt, sacrifice, burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now listen to this. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That's a pretty powerful rebuke, isn't it? And we see this as an example of how it was used in the Old Testament, but how do we use the spirit of knowledge today? Well, in our day, the spirit of knowledge can bring supernatural insight to the believer. I can't tell you how many times I've done counseling, or Tammy and I have done counseling, and one or both of us will just receive something from God that will tell us what's going on. It can just be they're not telling the truth. It could just be the principal thing about this is maybe it's a, a, a couple thing and one of them's doing something they're not supposed to be doing. It can just come in all kinds of ways like that. Sometimes it can come at work. I can't tell you how many times at work that I've been sitting there staring at a patient trying to figure out what's wrong with it and all of a sudden in the back of my head, light bulb comes on. That's the Holy Spirit giving me a little bit of knowledge. That, that spirit of knowledge is just as available to you and me as it was to Samuel in the Old Testament. The final example of the seventh spirit of God, and probably the most important, because I believe this is the belt, if you will, that holds all these spirits together, and that is the fear of the Lord. This isn't talked about very often in today's Christianity. But I think it needs to be. That word fear means to hold an ultimate and reverent respect. And there's an interesting fact about this concept. I did a study years and years ago. And it kind of explains how and why things are happening today. I read a story this week about a United States Congresswoman who went to the prayer breakfast and said, I was almost late because my boyfriend was trying to pull me back into bed for a quickie. More. And she's at the prayer breakfast. It's like, um, way not to read that crowd. And the whole crowd's kind of going, wow. You know? And it just showed that, she goes, oh, I love God. She's been proclaiming, every, I love God, I love God. Well, here's something that, that I looked up a long time ago. 
You know the concept of loving God in the Old Testament appears about 150 times in the Bible? Do you know how, how often the concept fearing God shows up in the Bible? Between three and 400, depending on the translation. Three to tw over two and a half times it tells us to fear the Lord. So much so that Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the love of God. We are to love the Lord, your God, but we are also to fear him. And every single thing we've talked about this morning, the other six attributes of the Spirit of God, in order for them to be used for the glory of God, they have to start with having a pure reverential fear of God in our lives. You need to see God for who he is. He's not your buddy. He's not your best friend. He is God. He may be the lover of your soul. He may be the, a person who loves you more than anybody else, but you have to understand he is also creator God. And we need to fear God properly to use his spiritual gifts. We need to fear God to live a life of, of purpose to build his kingdom and not our own. In fact, if anything is going to save America, it's going to be a return to the fear of the Lord, especially in his church. And why do I think that? Because of verse 3. In Isaiah 11.3, it says that he, talking about Jesus, will delight in the fear of the Lord. He didn't say he would delight in the, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of counsel, might, knowledge. He didn't say he would, he would delight in that. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Let's all stand. As we go through this Holy Spirit series, it's useful to remind ourselves what we are asking for when we ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon us. First thing we should recognize is his name, Holy, Holy Spirit. Not fun spirit, not make me happy spirit, Holy Spirit, holiness is the fear of the Lord. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that within our own personal lives, you would fill us once again with the fear, the awesome reverential respect for who you really should be in our lives and who you really are in this universe. Father, as much as we want to say we love you, we cherish you, we adore you, we first must fear you. So, Father, bring that back into our lives and our church this morning. Not only our lives and our church, but our nation's churches again.